Ah, there we go. I think the elders decide to prank me when I preach sometimes. And so they've pranked me once again. Uh, but Larry asked if I would fill in for him as he was on the retreat and preach for him this morning. And we're in the middle of a series called Mentors in Prayer. And uh, this morning we will be mentored in prayers of repentance. And I was very excited for the opportunity to preach on this topic because I'm actually concerned that Christians today, and I include myself in this group, don't repent well. I, I think that we may apologize, we may acknowledge that what we did was wrong, but I wonder if we truly repent. Let me provide an illustration that may help us understand what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm from Florida, and when my, my kids were young, it was a hot summer day, and so we filled up one of those cheap plastic Walmart swimming pools, and so they could play in the water and, and cool off. And so quickly, my son runs inside, and he grabs some trucks and some Hot Wheels, and Brooklyn goes, and she, she grabs some of her Barbies. And so they're sitting there playing in the pool. I sit in a chair off to the side to watch them to make sure they don't drown because, you know, the media tells us that kids can drown in an inch of water. They, they scare you to death, and so you're constantly keeping your eyes on your kids. And so I'm sitting there, I'm watching them play. It's a beautiful day. Things are going so well. And then all of a sudden, Hunter yanks one of Brooklyn's Barbies right out of her hand and starts playing with it in the water. Sounded like such a good idea in my head. Day at the pool. So Brooklyn, she starts crying, I want my Barbie, I want my Barbie. And so like a good parent, I go over, I pull my son out of the pool, and I teach him that, hey, Hunter, what you've just done, you've wronged your sister. You've actually been selfish, and you're struggling with envy. I want you to go apologize to your sister. And you gotta, you got to say you're sorry before you get back in the pool and play. Scenario sound familiar? If you're a parent, you've, you've been with some kids, you put them in a, in a setting where they're playing with other kids, and they yank a toy from someone else, and you walk them through this process. If you're not a parent, you've obviously been a child, and you're probably guilty of this crime yourself. So my response, my advice that I gave Hunter that day, from, a, from the parent's perspective, is all, all good and wise. But think about what's going on in Hunter's mind, our child's mind at this point. I've just told him that if he wants to get back and play in the pool, he has to say he's sorry. Well, who doesn't want to get back in the pool and play? I want to get back in the pool and play. So my son will say whatever he's got to say, even if he doesn't really mean it, so that he can get what he wants, so that he can get back in the pool and play. And I don't think it's just my son's problem. I think most kids would say they're sorry, even when they don't mean it, so they can get back to playing again. And unfortunately, I think we've carried this childish model of confession into our adult lives. And unfortunately, I think we've carried it into our Christian lives as well. I believe that more than we realize, our confessions are motivated out of a desire to uh, limit or eliminate the negative consequences. Instead of brokenness of our sin before a holy God and others. This is what you'll sometimes hear referred to as the difference between contrition and attrition. And the best passage that I think highlights this is 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10. So turn with me there in your Bibles if you have them. If not, they will be on the screen behind me. 2 Corinthians 7 reads this. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So Paul here speaks of 
godly grief versus worldly grief. And godly grief, he tells us, leads to repentance, whereas worldly grief leads to death. Godly grief is what you'll hear referred to as contrition, and worldly grief is what you'll hear referred to as attrition. Now, I am not here to teach you an academic lesson this morning. That's not what I am up to. But the reason I bring this up is because I think that this distinction is so critical in our understanding of what true repentance is and what it's not. Let me give you another example from an adult perspective that may help us distinguish between these two. There's two different men both struggling with alcoholism, what the Bible refers to as the sin of drunkenness. Now, both of these men are, are married and they have children. And their most recent binge was the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will. They have been fired from their job and their wife has contacted Child Protective Services and is planning on leaving him and taking the kids. So both of these men's sins are clearly evident before them and their consequences are severe. So greatly concerned with the prospect of losing his wife and having no prospect of a job or, or even a steady flow of income, man number one, we'll call him John, he apologizes in tears to his wife, to his employer, and even to God. Unfortunately, his motivation is to get his wife and his job back. He's willing to do whatever it takes. He even says he's willing to go to marriage counseling, AA, and you know what, if his, if his employer will just give him his job back, he will take the lowest job in the company. But unfortunately, his motivation is just to get his job back. Man number two, we'll call him Steve. He's in the same situation, but he's broken over his sin before a holy God. He falls to his knees, he repents to God, and pursues his wife and boss in repentance. Steve also decides to go to marriage counseling AA and to take whatever job his employer is willing to give him. Now, if we're not careful, these two scenarios sound the same. But upon closer examination, we see that John confesses out of a concern for self and the potential negative consequences. He doesn't want his sin to prevent him from playing in the pool. Steve, on the other hand, is primarily concerned about his relationship with God, God's glory, and the love he has for his wife and even his employer. His repentance is not contingent upon getting to play in the pool. Now, obviously, John wants his, or excuse me, Steve wants his wife and kids back, but he is going to pursue obedience and sobriety even if the consequences remain. Whereas John will turn back to alcohol as soon as the dust is settled or he doesn't get his wife and kids back. So contrition produces true repentance, which is motivated by love of God and neighbor, while attrition may produce confession. It is not true repentance and is motivated by love of self and a desire to limit or eliminate the negative consequences. The easiest way to remember the difference between these two is that contrition is, I'm sorry I did it, and attrition is, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I did it versus, I'm sorry I got caught. So how do you and I, how do we repent well? How do we pray prayers of true repentance? We need a mentor. We need someone who has sinned greatly, repented well, 
and been fully restored to God. And David is that mentor for us this morning. Now, last week, David mentored us on how to pray on what Larry called our wonderful, delightful, no bad, very good days. How to pray in the good times. Well, obviously, from the scripture readers this morning, that is not where we find David this morning. David is having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, to quote a children's book. King David has slept with another man's wife, gotten her pregnant, tried to cover it up, and when that didn't work, he had him murdered in a military cover-up. These are grievous sins, sins that are still heinous in our society today. So the Lord sends Nathan in grace and mercy to confront him. And through the telling of a parable, David recognizes his great sin. So how does David, this great sinner, repent of these big sins? Some here today may even wonder, can God forgive sins so big? So let's pray together and observe how King David repents so that he can help us when we sin. So that he can help us pray on our terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. So let's, let's pray. Father, we need your help to even understand how to repent. So help us through your word today. Let us send under its teaching so that we may repent in a way that's pleasing to you, that's honoring to you. Lord, for we need your mercy. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So back to our question, how did David repent? We read in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, after Nathan had confronted David, this is David's response. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's it. A simple acknowledgement that what he did was wrong. It, it seems like there needs to be more. As a young believer, I remember reading this passage for the first time and wondering, is that all? After all, David had done he, sins of lust, adultery, deception, manipulation, murder, military cover-up, and all we get is a, yep, I did it. At first glance, it didn't seem enough. It didn't, it didn't seem sincere. So which was David's? Was David's a godly grief contrition like Steve? Or was his a worldly grief attrition like John? Was he sorry for what he did or was he sorry that he got caught? And even though his confession is a brief one in this passage, I think we get a clue that David is truly repentant. Because he views his sins as primarily against God. He's not like some child who Nathan has said, you can't go back in the pool and play until you've apologized. No, David seems primarily concerned about his relationship with God. Not only that, he writes Psalm 51. It's his prayer of repentance. As a young believer, I didn't know that if you turn from 2 Samuel 12 to Psalm 51, that the story continues. So let's, let's do that today. Turning your Bibles to Psalm 51, this will be our key text for this morning. And let's examine David's full confession. This is David, King David's prayer of repentance. And as we sit underneath God's word, let's let David mentor us on how we should pray. Because we want to pray like David. The title of today's sermon is, we want to learn how to repent like a king. So how does a king 
through 10th. In verse 1, we see of Psalm 51, he starts with, Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So before David even confesses his particular sins, he begins with a plea for mercy. He knows that he needs God's mercy. Mercy in its simplest definition is not getting the punishment that we rightly deserve. So uh, on Monday, uh, we didn't cook dinner at our house. It was what we call a yo-yo night, you're on your own. I don't know if you guys ever have these. We have older kids, so they're on their own. And uh, Brooklyn decides to cook cinnamon rolls for dinner. You know, super nutritious meal for dinner, right? So she turns the oven on, she slides the cinnamon rolls in, and she, she bakes these cinnamon rolls. And so uh, we're not eating at the same time. We're kind of in the living room all doing our own thing, but we're together. You know, that's family time, right, together. And so uh, she finishes her cinnamon rolls. And so my son's on leave from the military. He's on leave from the Air Force. Oh, and what a great sister. She goes and gets a plate puts some cinnamon rolls and, and gives it to him. She serves him the cinnamon rolls. And so he devours these hot, fresh, delicious cinnamon rolls. And when he gets done, we're all in the living room, and my daughter cannot stop laughing. She's laughing and laughing and laughing. And we're all confused. What's so funny? Did we, did we miss something today? Oh, and she could not wait to tell her brother that when she finished her cinnamon rolls, that she put the plate on the floor and let the dog lick the plate. Not only that, she, she told him, you know what, I rubbed those cinnamon rolls in the drool. <laughs> now, our dog's name is Tank, okay? Tank is a boxer, and he can drool. So she's just so overwhelmed with her own prank. And then Hunter says, oh, just wait. Oh, I can't wait to get you back. You are going to pay for this. Now, in this moment, my daughter realizes the severity of her mistake. Because my son is way better at pranks than she is. Because he takes it to the extreme measure. And I cannot tell you and can't describe the situation. She literally falls on her knees before him at his feet. <laughs> and she uses these words, mercy, Hunter, mercy, give me mercy. Please don't prank me back. Mercy, mercy, mercy. You see, mercy is getting not what you deserve. And she knew that she needed mercy. She knew she deserved punishment, but instead she wanted her brother to show her mercy. David knew that mercy was his greatest need. And he also knew that his God was a merciful God. Unlike my son, who's not very merciful at times, God is what David describes in verse 1 as abundantly merciful. Listen to a description of the Lord from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is David's God. This 
is who David is pleading with. And so God's mercy draws David toward him in repentance like the earth's gravitational pull. When we remember the depth of God's mercy, we are inescapably drawn towards him in repentance. As Daniel mentioned earlier, to paraphrase Paul in Romans 2.4, it is God's kindness, his mercy that's designed to lead us towards him in repentance. It's designed to lead you and I towards God in repentance. So David's God, our God, is a God of mercy. This is where David begins his prayer of repentance, and this is where we need to begin our prayers of repentance as well. It is mercy that drew David towards God in repentant prayer, and it is mercy that will draw you and I to him in repentant prayer as well. So we don't even get out of the first verse before David mentions God's steadfast love and mercy once more. David's plea for mercy is not based on his character, but on the character of God, God's steadfast love or covenantal love. God's love for David has not ceased, even in the midst of David's great sin. So according to God's mercy and steadfast love, David prays that God would blot out his transgressions. He wants his sins, his transgressions, to be erased, to be canceled out. And he uses this companion metaphor to wipe off, like you would a dirty plate, to wipe off and wash clean. Because David knows that his sins have stained him, and he implores the Lord to wash him and make him clean. Archibald Simpson writes, Sin is filthy to think of, filthy to speak of, filthy to hear of, filthy to do. In a word, there is nothing in it but vileness. And David realizes his vileness, and he follows his plea for forgiveness with a declaration of his filthy sins. Listen to what he writes in verse 3 through 6. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So David knows his sins all too well. He writes that they are ever before him. He can't get them out of his head. The burden is too heavy. The weight of his guilt is too much, and he doesn't want to carry it anymore. So David declares that his sins are against his king, his God, and God's kingdom. Now, some unfortunately misunderstand this verse and use it as a reason that they don't have to confess their sins to others, those that they've wronged. But we know that's not true from other passages in Scripture. Take Matthew 18, for example. Matthew 18, verse 15 reads, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Spurgeon is helpful here when he writes, To injure our fellow man is sin, mainly because in doing so we violate the law of God. David's heart was so filled with a sense of wrong done to the Lord himself that all other confession was swallowed up in a brokenhearted acknowledgement of his offense against God. So sin is 
primarily against God since it is God's law that David had broken. But this does not negate the fact that David had sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, and even the nation of Israel to some degree. But back to sin being primarily against God. Listen to how R.C. Sproul defines sin. He says, sin is cosmic treason. What I mean by this statement is that even the slightest sin that a creature commits against his creator does violent to the creator's holiness, his glory, and his righteousness. Every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us. And listen to what he says. As such is an act of treason against the cosmic king. So sin is cosmic treason. And as such is ultimately treachery against God and his kingdom. And David realizes this, and that's why his focus is on his sins against God. Now, David's repentance for his acts leads him to declare not only his sin, but his fallen nature. He declares that he was brought forth in iniquity and conceived in sin. Basically, what he's saying is this sin is not an isolated one. I didn't make just one mistake. He realizes and confesses that he has a propensity to sin, that his default is not good, but evil. Listen to Genesis 8, 21. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So in agreement with this, in Genesis 8, David writes in verse 6 that God is not simply concerned with isolated external behavior, but the inward man. What the Bible refers to often as the heart. God is concerned with his motivation, his intentions, and his desires. He's not simply concerned with what someone did, what someone thought, what someone felt. God is primarily concerned with the why behind the action. God wants to know why you struggle with anger. God wants to know why you're lustful. God wants to know why you're anxious, why you are a people pleaser, why you don't share your faith. Why do you delight and love other things more than him? For God knows that it's out of the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, that the mouth speaks, that we perform these actions. And God is after the heart. He cares about our inward motivations. So God's concerned about our motivations more than mere behavior. And David knows this, and as such, that his sins has deep roots of the heart, that even his external fruit of adultery and murder cannot fully reveal. And David's declaration here of his sins leads him back to pleading with God once more. This time he pleads for personal restoration. Verses 7 through 12. He writes, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So this is David's second plea in Psalm 51. And he revisits and expands his first plea in the first two verses. He begins with this interesting phrase, purge me with hyssop. We don't 
used that phrase a lot today. And he's recalling the imagery of the laws concerning lepers back in Leviticus 14. So let's look at that passage. Leviticus 14 verses 6 and 7. He, speaking of the priest, shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird and the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times over him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the field. So this is the imagery that David chooses to use on himself because this is how he views himself. David relates with the lowly, the outcast, a leper who needs to be cleansed. And in this humility, he enlists God. He wants God to be his priest and to perform the ceremonial act of cleansing himself. Because he knows that if God washes him, that he shall be whiter than the whitest thing he can imagine, snow. As I mentioned, I'm from Florida. We don't get a lot of snow there, okay? So we moved here in 2003, and I remember the first time it snowed. Some friends came and picked us up and took a sledding at Pascal Golf Course. That's a great place to go sledding if you've never been. And so I, I wasn't really amazed by the sledding as I was how bright the snow was. I, I almost needed sunglasses to be able to see out there because when the sun would reflect off the snow, it was blindingly bright. David is saying when God cleanses us that we are whiter than the blinding white of fresh snow. There's nothing whiter. So being cleansed like a former leper allows David to re-enter society again. And this is where he speaks of this joy and gladness. Like the prodigal son who returned home, it was time to celebrate. It was time to throw a big party. And along with this renewed joy that David pleaded for, was still an understanding that there were consequences that remained. We see this in his plea in verse 8, where he says, Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Even in this reality that repentance does not remove all of the consequences of our sin, we see mercy. We see mercy. His crushed bones can rejoice. Even in the midst of his temporal pain, he has the opportunity to rejoice. He can rejoice that he has been forgiven and he has been restored. So even though prayers of repentance might not remove those painful consequences of our actions, we can know that there can be joy because we have been fully forgiven and fully restored. The God of all comforts. Is with us. Now, in his second plea for his sins to be blotted out, he asked God to hide his face, not from him, but from his sins. This reminds me of Isaiah 43 25. Let me read this to you Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So in blotting out David's sins, God chooses to remember them no more. What an astonishing statement. Think about this. The omniscient God, the all-knowing God, the one who can remember everything that's ever happened, voluntarily chooses to remember 
our sin no more. Think about this in relation to your own sins. No matter what you have done, no matter how unforgivable they seem, through repentance and faith in Christ, God chooses to remember your sins no more. Wow. What mercy, what steadfast love, what abundant mercy. Same things David mentioned in verse 1. He continues his plea by asking the Creator to do what only the Creator can do, to create in Him a clean heart. He doesn't ask for His dirty heart to be clean in this section. No, He asks for God to give Him and create in Him a new clean heart. He asks for the supernatural. And once again, David wants all of this so that he is not cast away from God's presence. He does not want God to hide his face. In repentance, David desires renewal and restoration with God. He wants to draw near to him. I really believe that one of David's fears uh, was that God would reject him and withdraw his Holy Spirit from him as he had done Saul. He had seen that happen to Saul. But David was a man after God's own heart. He was a child of God. And God, even in the midst of his great sin, had not taken his Holy Spirit from him. And David's final plea in this section is again for joy, for the joy of God's salvation to be restored. His sin had distracted him from the joy of his first love, and he desperately desires its restoration. This is what repentance does for you and for me. Repentance restores the joy of of God's salvation to us. Repentance restores the joy of God's salvation to our lives. We need to make this a part of our prayers of repentance. We need to ask God to restore the joy of His salvation in our lives as we repent to Him. And to protect this re restored joy, David asked God to uphold him with a willing spirit, one that will choose to obey when faced with future temptations, one that will bear fruit worthy of repentance. One of the things that we desire in good repentance is a desire to no longer sin. We want to avoid it. We want to turn away from the sin and walk towards God in obedience. We want to delight in God as our greatest delight. And David understands that we need his help to do that. So David's pleading for personal restoration leads him to declaring a renewed devotion to God. Look at verses 13 through 17. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. So David declares here that he will use his experience, he will use his struggles with sin to teach other sinners how to repent and be restored to God. Think about it. How many men and women has David taught repentance through this psalm? He's still teaching. He's teaching us this morning, there's no better mentor to sinners than a rescued sinner. Sam jokingly mentioned right before I came up that the reason I was equipped to teach this passage is because I sin greatly. And he 
He's right. He's right. I do. And David realized this. And so David is this rescue sinner, and he's concerned about equipping others, other sinners, to return to God and experience the same forgiveness that he had experienced. And David's concern is our concern. You know, church at North Wake, all of us in this room who profess to be Christians have been rescued from sin ourselves. We know that we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we know that sin is cosmic treason and that treason is deserving of death. But we also know and believe that God himself came in the form of a man. Came as a man, as Jesus Christ. And Jesus died the death that we all deserve, taking the full wrath of God for the sins that we committed. So that through faith in him, we can have a restored relationship, we can be forgiven, and we can spend eternity with him in heaven. So like David, we are rescue sinners who have the great privilege of teaching other sinners how they can be rescued from their sin as well. If you're here, we have a high population of seminary students. If you're a seminary student and you're training for future vocational ministry, there's no better preparation for ministry than the personal practice of repentance. Is this a regular practice of yours? Are you consistently broken over your own sin? In humility, do you plead like David for God's abundant mercy? To help others repent, you must repent well yourselves. There's no better evangelism training than the personal practice of repentance. So in verse 14, David declares that he's guilty of murder, what's called blood guiltness, one of the worst crimes. But it's interesting, when he finally confesses this great sin, he addresses God more confidently. Earlier, he's been referring to God as, oh God, and here he says, oh God, oh God of my salvation. Spurgeon comments here that faith grows by the exercise of prayer. David's prayer of repentance has caused his faith to grow. He draws near to God, and it prompts him to sing of God's righteousness. David returns to this imagery of a leper as well. He says, like a leper whose upper lip was covered, who only proclaimed unclean, unclean, he wants God to open his lips so that he can declare praise upon praise. As a spiritual leper who has been cleansed and returned to society, David wants to praise God. And David ends his declaration with an understanding that there is no sacrifice in the law of Moses for his sins of murder and adultery. If there were, he says, he would give it. But even more than the sacrifices, he says, God desires humility. This thing we called earlier contrition. He's looking for a humbled heart, a contrite heart. He says if there were appropriate sacrifices for his crime, he would give it. But even then, that God would not be pleased with the mere external act of it. No, that would be simply attrition. But it is the internal, the heart that God looks at. Contrition, which produces repentance and leads to life. This is what pleases the Lord. So David ends his declaration with God's pleasure and humility and contrition. For David knows that the great destroyer of repentance is pride. God despises the proud, but delights in the humble. And so now, 
Let's read David's final plea in verses 18 and 19. He says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So David turns from his own personal restoration to the restoration of the, na- uh, of the nation. His concern here is for others. As king, he realizes that his sins not only affects him, but those in his kingdom. David realizes that none of us live on a spiritual or moral island. Our sins impact those around us. So much so that when Paul would write to the church in the New Testament, he writes this in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I really wonder, church, if a greater awareness of our sin's impact on those around us would cause us to think twice before we follow through in our sin. I wonder if we really thought about the impact it has on those we love most. If we would repent and pursue God in obedience. So David has pleaded for God's mercy and forgiveness. He has declared his sins and confessed them. He has returned to pleading for personal restoration. He's declared a renewed devotion to God. And all of this leads him to plead with God for the restoration of the nation. He desires good for the people. You see, humble prayers of supplication often lead to humble prayers of petition. Humble prayers of supplication often lead to humble prayers of petition. To quote Forrest Gump, uh, repentance and concern for others go together like peas and carrots. I tried. Um, They go together. As you repent, does it remind you to pray for others in your life? To pray for their good. To pray for their repentance. To pray for their restoration. So I think we've seen this morning this psalm by King David. This prayer displays a contrite heart. There's no question what motivates David's prayer of repentance. His primary concern was with his relationship with God and good for others. He was motivated by love of God and love of others. David would have repented even if he couldn't get back in the pool and play. It wasn't the negative consequences that he was most concerned about. It was God and God's people. So church, how do we repent like a king? Let me share a story of how one person did recently. I'm, I have a friend who I'm in a discipleship relationship with, and a month ago he shared one of his journal entries with me. Now my friend has been through a lot recently. Uh, his wife cheated on him. Uh, they came to counseling together. She denied her faith. She eventually left him, divorced him, and then moved in with someone else. So my friend's suffering is great. But in the midst of his suffering, in his own words, let me read to you what he wrote. Resulted that he had become so angry and unwilling to bow his knee to God because he felt that God had abandoned him and that there was no truth in God. He said, I've walked so long in what I thought were his ways only to have it all crash before me. Now, 
some of my friends have been walking through this for a long time, and I, I want to skip and fast forward a little bit from this to his journal entry, his prayer of repentance for his sins of what he described as anger and unbelief. Here's his words. O Lord, both my, both my mouth and my heart have insulted you, spoken of things which I had no right. In arrogance, I said, you must not be real. How can a good God allow such things? Will you bow your and bend your knee to my foolish ways? May it never be. Who am I to question your integrity? For I am evil, and in me is no good. And yet I still believe my way to be best. Foolishness that was, Lord. So I ask of you, give me wisdom to understand of which I do not know. That through deeper understanding, my heart would cry out praises to you. For you are a gracious God. Only let that grace define who I am in you. Drive me to repentance continually and a deeper love for you. For in you I cannot be shaken. So with both hands allow me to let go of the worthless treasures of this passing earth and boldly cling to you, my cornerstone. For in you there is comfort. Even in the midst of darkness, when the winds howl and all hope seems lost, I can be reassured that in you I will not be shattered. For you have been tested from every angle and proven yourself true. You do not change and you do not weaken. Let me cast my burdens onto you and in you alone put my hope. Forgive me for my insolence. That's my friend's prayer of repentance. And, you know, from hearing this, you would think he's some type of writer, some type of poet. No, he's a regular person like you and me. He's got a blue-collar job. But he was simply overwhelmed by his sin. And he was inescapably drawn by the mercy of God. Prerequisites to healthy prayers of repentance. This average guy repented like a king. I don't know if you noticed, but my friend's prayer of repentance interestingly had a similar pattern to Psalm 51. You can see it on the slide behind me. Psalm 51 can kind of be outlined this way. We see David in verses 1 and 2 pleading for mercy and forgiveness. And it leads him to declaring confessions of his sin. Then he returns back to pleading for personal restoration. And then he declares a renewed devotion to God. And then he pleads for others. My friend didn't have this outline. I had not, not even put this together yet. He just simply was convicted by his sin and drawn by God's mercy. And he wrote his own Psalm 51. So what's your Psalm 51? If you were to write your own prayer of confession, your own prayer of repentance, what would it be? What sins would you confess? What would your pleas be? What would you declare? It doesn't have to be written. Remember, Psalm 51 was often sung. Don't get caught up in the medium of repentance. Simply be drawn to prayer, whatever the form, by the great mercy of of God. David's mentored us this morning. We can pray like David and we can repent like a king. So as the worship team comes up, I'm going to I'm going to pray for us. But there's no better day to repent 
than today. Some of you are here and, and you've never repented. You don't have a relationship with God. Today's a great day to do that. You can come up front. You can sit where you are. It doesn't matter. But repent to the Lord. Receive God's mercy. And be forgiven. Church, a lot of us have sins that we've confessed. Sins that we've acknowledged are wrong. But we may not have truly, fully repented. Again, today's a great opportunity for that. Again, there's no better posture sometimes than down front. Because it really displays humility. You know, pride is what keeps us in our seats sometimes. Because we don't want others to think that we're so bad. But we're all have struggled with great sin. We've all received mercy. And so there's no embarrassment here. There's no judgment here. So I'm going to pray for us. And feel free to come down front. There will be some pastors. If you want a pastor or elder to pray for you, just grab them on the arm. They'd be happy to pray for you. So let's pray. Father, I'm convinced and at the same time concerned that the reason many of us have sins that we've carried for far too, far too long is because we've never fully or truly repented of them. Lord, we've confessed them, we've acknowledged them, but to be honest, we like them. We may not like what they do in our lives, but we have fun in those sins. How dare us? Help us to repent to you, Lord, and let your mercy be that which draws us towards you in repentance. Let us plead with you and let us declare your goodness. We need your help. In Christ's name, amen.